Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have David Zeff, founder and CEO of Whistle. David has over 10 years of experience selling technology to hundreds of SMBs and enterprise companies across multiple sectors. And he's began to wrap his head around the art of sales, which is what he helps companies do at Whistle. He's also been part of two exits, one as a founder and one on the founding team. And in this episode, David talks more about the mission of Whistle, which is to help companies grow by assisting them with marketing and sales campaigns across lead to deal funnels. We dive deep into that in this episode. Tons of actionable insights. As always, the show notes are justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here's David Zeff, founder and CEO of Whistle, which you can find at callwhistle.com. David, welcome to the show. Hello, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate you taking the time. Come on. Excited to talk all about you know, sales and marketing and things you're doing. And for people who don't know Whistle, what are you doing with this company, Whistle? So we're an inside sales agency. Um, we already specialize in two things. On the one hand, we do sales development as a service. Uh, the other side of our business is actually running um, sales from, from start to close for SMB and mid-market sales. With this company, David, how did you decide to start this? So it's uh, like all great things. It happened uh, almost fortuitously, almost by mistake. <laughs> um, I'm the kind of guy who's got a lot of plans. And I, um, you know, I've been in the startup world for about 10 years. And I'm always cooking up different ideas for different companies and planning which tech startup to create. And um, <laughs> this one happened by chance. I created a blueprint for myself, a 10-question blueprint Um which I don't have the questions on me, so don't, don't ask them. Happy to them <laughs> One later, of those but, ten questions. Yeah, I, I, I've got <laughs> yeah. it. I've got it written in a book, which is in another room. But um, yep. the what I did was I basically created this filter for myself because I was like, coming up with ideas all the time, and do I start with this and that? And it basically just kind of helped me identify business opportunities that were real. And so anything I came up with, like if it didn't pass those ten questions, I wasn't going to do it. So in the backdrop of that. Right, which I called the blueprint, the startup blueprint. To the backdrop of that, um, I I've been part of two exits, one my own and one as an early stage employee. And um, thankfully, I've got a good network. And uh, VC started approaching me like to do some consulting work for their startups. And having ridden the you know startup roller coaster a good couple of times over over ten years, and you know having the scars to prove it, I noticed that a lot of the challenges that startups had were ready in sales, right? Sales and marketing. And um, that's, you know, my background, my expertise. And um, the comp one, you know, one company I've got quite a, a lucrative kind of consulting gig with, um, which was a side hustle, by the way, alongside my, you know, daily job as a head of sales <laughs> in an early stage startup. Um, I, and uh, I started consulting to them. It, I call it daylighting because it's, it wasn't, it was official. It was okay. It was cleared with the CEO. Uh, I wasn't moonlighting, but um, that consultant gig um, opened me up to a problem that they had, which was they were um, successful in the local market, but they didn't have any sort of overseas exposure and they had no idea how to crack it with sales development. And they asked me if I knew how to build a team. And I had built sales development teams before. And I said, yeah, you know what? Like allocate me some budget and I'll build a team. And we did. And we did really well. 
And, um, you know, I brought in people who I've worked with in, in the past. And I said, hey, listen, side gig for you. You know, let's, let's just do this. Let's see what happens. And it went really well. We signed an annual contract. And I was still too kind of too scared to kind of quit my job and go all in yet. And, you know, I've, got a, I've got a wife, two kids. I'm like, you know, I'm not going to go. I'm, it's still not there, but it's all the elements were there for like the the 10 point blueprint, right? Um, this is people willing to pay for your services and it's an industry and area that you know and you're really comfortable with. And uh, so we started and it was still a side hustle. And then I sent, landed a second client and a third client. After the third client, which is, you know, quite a well-known uh, startup, uh, definitely locally and internationally as well. Um, I, I, that was my sign. I knew that that was going to happen. Um, I put in my notice at work. I said, look, let's, I'm, let's work on a really nice transition six months. We'll, we'll bring in someone else. I'll train them up as head of sales and I'll go for it. And uh, COVID hit, hit, right. And that accelerated everything. So I was like, all right, you know, that's when we really kind of switched from, what a normal startup would call stealth mode to like, we're fully, you know, we're out there and, and, um, things accelerated massively over this year. Um, you know, and it's just been really, really cool to you know, see us grow. Now we're a team of 14 people and, um, yeah, it's been, it's actually been a, a blessing in disguise, but that's my journey. I kind of had all the ingredients there and, and fell into it. Um, versus like really, you know, um, <laughs> hypothesizing at first. Yeah, it's something to be said for taking action, right? And just going out there, you start with this one client, you obviously get results for them and help them and then more more come along. And I think that organic route of growth, especially if it is a side hustle of sorts to start with in this particular industry in this way, makes a ton of sense, um, especially from a low risk standpoint. And you mentioned the 14 people, like what types of roles are those you know, included within your team then? So um, one operations person, uh, one HR slash recruitment slash... Uh, kind of team morale person. Um, I can get into why and what in what order we hide in. And then the others are all uh, two two marketing people. So one focusing on on more content and customer uh, content. One on branding, and then the rest on uh, sales campaigns. Yeah, I would love to hear more of the details you mentioned about around kind of the why and uh, kind of the order you hired that in from that team standpoint. Yeah. So um, I think the the biggest thing, and I'm still on that journey. I'm not like fully. Uh, you know, I'm still doing most of the sales myself for whistle. That is right. Um, but I, one thing I realized very, very early is that it started with me as one of the SDRs, right. For this first client, um, on the ground, you know, doing everything. I mean, writing all the scripts, uh, doing all the calls over and above my job, late nights at 2 AMs, that kind of crazy stuff. Um, which always sounded so romantic, right? It always sounds so like, oh, wow, this entrepreneur. It's hard. It's hard. You know? But yeah. young kids, I'm like calling from my kitchen and trying not to wake anyone up, that kind of stuff. And um, so very quickly, as soon as that first kind of, let's call it pilot client proved itself, and they're like, yeah, you guys did a great job. Let's sign on an annual contract. I was like, okay, step one, remove yourself off the SDR team, right? So hire better people. Uh, step two, um, I was managing all the campaigns on a daily uh, for this client and checking on our calls, whatever, and that meant I couldn't grow. So step two was put in someone in terms of operations to help just deal with the daily stuff with the team. Okay, so that first client, we had like a team of six people calling for them. So it wasn't like a small thing. Um, so put together somebody to to work with the team and also to plan 
around all sorts of things like contingencies. What if someone was sick and we had downtime? What yeah. if someone went on holiday? Like the client expects results and how do we even know what we're doing? <laughs> so that was, you know, that was that, you know, that other hire. Um, from there, um, the immediate challenge that we identified almost straight away is that we are actually a recruitment company, right? Ultimately, you're going to spend a lot of time hiring people and training people and onboarding people. So one of the the SDRs, um, and I'll, I'll talk about our SDRs. I don't know how relevant it is to this, but one of them um, had a lot of experience in recruitment. Obviously, COVID, not exactly a lot going on in the world of uh, recruitment in the beginning of this year, so they needed extra work. And so I was like, hey, you know HR, you know recruitment. Like they had worked as a... Um, you know, inside a large corporate as a uh, uh, you know, hirer and recruiter and HR person in the past. And so I got them to kind of add a few extra hours of just you know, checking with what's going on and help me from little things like when is everyone's birthday so I can make sure to wish them happy birthday and send them something to yeah. like, you know, ba- like bigger stuff. Hey, this person's got some sort of personal issue or challenge. I knew that if I was, it's not that I couldn't do any of these things. It's that if I was going to do it, it wasn't the best use of me in in the role at the company. Like everyone is, you know, plays a plays a role in this machine, and maybe I could fit a few different, you know, um, key that could fit a few different uh, holes here. But I was better suited elsewhere. So that was kind of the second one. Um, so a lot of foundational stuff at the start, which I had only really learned because I had worked in startups for a long time and seen what not to do. You know, the the mindset usually is like. <laughs> Hey, let's let's just close deals and promise the world, and we'll figure out the, how to do it later. And and that's like that's that's cool if you get it right, and very painful if you get it wrong. <laughs> right. And and I've worked in those companies where we got it wrong, and it was not fun. You know, I still like talk to people who worked at some of the earlier companies I worked in. They're like, you know, you promised this client like whatever, right? Salesforce integration, and we didn't build it until three years later. And I'm like, well, I don't know. We, that's what we were told to do. It, you know, not that it's yeah. right or wrong. So one, we started on the foundational stuff, operations, uh, recruitment, because that was really important for us. Every client means more people that we have to hire and train and keep keep happy. And then from there, I was one last big step to kind of freeing me um, from the daily was content. I was constantly writing content for sales campaigns, email content, scripts, whatever for the SDR campaigns. And the second I hired that content person and I watched her on a shared doc write the content was honestly was one of the greatest moments of this whole business was I was like oh my god I don't have to do this anymore spending two (laughs) two hours a day writing I'm like cool it's not my job anymore so um I think the order is or the principle is like try and find all the um bottlenecks uh that you can remove the next ones that I'm looking to remove are um managing the customer relationship like i'll check in whatever but not necessarily being their go-to which is now kind of shared with my operations person it's not completely me to be honest i've removed myself from most of it and then the final step in this for me is sales when i have a full-time salesperson and then i'm truly in my mind the ceo because then i'm really looking over now i'm you know i will be completely and solely focused on business development systems efficiency and you know big picture stuff having said that like i love selling uh, i don't think i'll ever stop selling it's that's i it's the core of any business i would never stop you know 
going and trying to bring us new and valuable opportunities. But having that capacity to have someone else focus on that stuff and report into me, that would be kind of, in my eyes, the final step in terms of operations that we need filled before I land up, you know, getting us to do something completely different or an extension of what we're doing today. And those things you mentioned, I mean, that's pretty much universal for almost any company in terms yeah. of how, as it, as it grows, right? You're going from that, you're doing almost everything as the founder, and yep. then you're trying to find ways to create leverage by having systems in place, having people do other things. So your time is leveraged in a better way. And you know, from talking to so many founders, they all go through this exact thing. You know, look at someone who starts a company and then they're grown to 150 employees or 200 employees. Like, it's a much different environment you're in then uh, than you are in the very, very early days. And one of the things you had mentioned, David, early on was, you know, you had to basically build a sales development team from scratch before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What went into that process? So, um, when you work at a at a startup. Um, you know, you're under immense pressure when you're VC funded and you've got to you've got to make good on a lot of the promises that founders make to get the funding, right? So um, for me, the biggest thing, I, I the, my first kind of gig at it was I inherited a team, but I inherited a team that was all half out the door. Um, I was working at a company in a sales role. The entire, you know, SDR team was like ready to leave. And yeah. I, I kept them all with by just doing very, very simple thing. I sat with each person and I just made them a deal. I was like, listen, I've been appointed VP of the SDR team. Like you, what do you need? And you know, how can you, you help? How can I help you and you help me? And for some people it was, you know, more opportunities. Some people was greater pay. Some people was more work-life flexibility. And I made them each a promise that if you guys will hit target and help me like just kill it, I promise you I will fight like for it. And I did. I, I fought the CFO every day for every person uh, in that team to get what they needed. And he was a CFO, you know, and there we say more, right? So yeah. it wasn't easy. It was like, why, why, why does this person need, I'm like, this person needs more because they've been working here for a year and a half and they're killing it. And so, um, and then as we scaled and grew and hired, I think the, you know, the SDR position itself gets a lot of attention now in the sales world. And I think it's because it's, it's a, it's pure selling in the sense that sales today has become very specialized. You're so used to getting as an AE and I've been AE for a long time, right? So you're so used to getting, here's like your ready cooked meal. Now, you know, take it to close. Whereas, you know, sales development, it's like you're already hunting. You're already out there, especially if you're doing like cold outbound stuff. I mean, you are just having conversations with the company's ideal prospect every day, getting the most insight into what the actual market wants and doesn't want, ideally, unless they're just hanging out with straight away. And you're able to, you know, you're able to relay that. You're able to tell that to marketing, to sales. And I've always looked at SDR as a intelligence gathering device for a company. And so when you look at it like that, it changes the entire approach to it versus your appointment setting. You know, your appointment setting, yes, if all the leading indicators are there. If you're talking to the right person at the right time on the right channel with the right message, then yes, you'll set a meeting. But if one of those things are off, you need to be able to understand that, right? Like, you know, I'm talking to John about fixing his windows and he's in charge of pipes. Like, I'm talking to the wrong person. I might have done the best pitch and I got hold of John and that's fine, but that's not his gig. And um, when you see it through that perspective, it's 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 a game changer and that's how you know when i built 
teams, even at the companies that weren't my own, it was always about that. It's like, how do we connect all the parts, right? Marketing, sales, I don't know why that's a, you know, we can talk about that as well, why that's a battle. But marketing, sales, not always speaking to each other, SDR in the middle, um, and being able to to relay on both sides. Sales had a meeting and the meeting was terrible, right? Okay, why? Are we targeting the wrong people? Or, you know, did people come to the meeting expecting something else because they saw different material or whatever? Cool, let's relay that to marketing. Um, so yeah, so I think, you know, that, that's that's kind of, you know, on the on the importance of it. Um, in terms of hiring, the one thing I will say about, you know, specifically for all the startups that are out there hiring SDRs, most of them bring on people that it's their first job. And generationally, there's, a, there's an issue with that today if you want them to call people because people are graduating from university today, don't call their parents. Okay, they are WhatsApping and they'll TikTok and they'll whatever. But they're not going to pick up the phone and call. So you're getting them to call strangers. It's a pretty tough thing. Um, so I, I would just kind of, pause on that and just say like what if is there another group of people that may be more experienced but maybe they're you know not to kind of uh, generalize but maybe they're i don't know moms okay who are looking for an afternoon job and maybe i can hire you know two people who are uh, taking care of their kids and whatever the mornings and available in the afternoons and looking for some work and get them to do you know four hours each a day instead of one person doing eight um and and work with people who've actually got experience in in talking to people and serving people. Um, the other one I think is, is enabling um, your SDRs. I think that all startups that I've come across uh, in my career are always focused on how many meetings did you set? But today, a lot of them are talking about, well, how well did you research that prospect and how personalized are your messages and how creative... And, um, you know, we do a lot of kind of consulting work on that front as well and enable, enablement work as well. And um, I always say, like, in the startups are always telling the same thing, like, oh, I wish our team was doing more of this kind of creative stuff and researching the prospect before they called. And I always ask them, like, guys, how do you compensate them? You know, do you compensate them for that or do you just compensate right. them on meeting set? Because here's, here's a news flash about salespeople, okay, whether you're sales development or you know, sales, you know, inside sales, field sales, you do what you're paid to do, yeah. right? So I'm paid to close deals. That's all I ever cared about, uh, you know, and, and I was in, like, in an aggressive role at like companies where they're like, bring them in, bring them in. I didn't care, like customer support's now crying, you know, about like, why did you bring this client in? I was like, I don't know, next, <laughs> you know, not my problem, your problem, bye. Like my attitude's changed a lot, but that's how I felt, you know, like, I'm like laser beams. I'm paid to 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 bring in the deals. I hit my target. I, I'm I'm a winner. Um, so you know, if you do want to encourage people to behave differently, you have to compensate them for it. And and um, you know, that's a big one. If you're going to hire SDRs, think about the candidates that you bring on, and also think about how are you enabling them. The last one is um, how are you measuring them? Because what you what you measure, you manage. I know it's an old saying, but it's true. Like if I'm only measuring on meeting set, then I'm missing all the other points that I mentioned earlier, which is like, you know, you're missing why they came to a meeting. Is there a trend? Is there, you know, what else can we, how can we improve this process? If I only look at the end result, I won't see it. With this as well, in terms of the SDRs, you mentioned this is more of an intelligence gathering machine, essentially, is what you're creating with this. What are some of those things you're trying to figure out or questions you're asking in that process that might be helpful for other founders who are hiring SDRs or for SDRs out there as well? Okay, so 
the big questions are, you know, who who should we talk to? How do we get a hold of them? What do we say to them? And possibly when, right? When does it make sense for us to have a sales conversation? So um, if you can answer all of those, then you've got a very, very good chance of bringing somebody to a meeting. Um, some, for example, the when element, you might not always be able to tell. The when is more like, is there a situation that could encourage people to be more, uh, hey, we've just yeah let go of 25 people and now we need your technology because we don't have the human capital anymore or whatever it is, right? Uh, hey, it's coming into summer and um, we need to install air conditionings in our facilities because we just built a facility without aircon, whatever it is, right? So, <laughs> um, so I think in terms of the the you know the the kind of key elements here and for that discovery process, it's relatively simple elements, but testing it is very very important and. I think it's hard to tell founders, especially when you're starting, like, oh, you guys don't test your hypothesis enough. Because I'm sure they hear that every day from VCs. I heard that also when I, you know, my first uh, tech company that I founded, like, used to hear that all the time. That along with, like, you haven't invested enough sweat equity, which I always, you know, that's the worst. I'm like, wait, what? Um, um, There's more? Um, But, you know, so I think, but you do have to kind of have, like, the guts um, for being able to listen and be open about feedback from the market itself, from your prospective customers themselves, and be able to test and say, okay, I've built a solution. I think it's going to, I mean, we had this in a real campaign. We had a company come to us. We built a solution. It's for Fortune 500s. Cool. We, we ran these campaigns in the Fortune 500s. They weren't interested at all. But you know who was interested? Companies with like 50 to 250 employees. They were like super into the solution. It was like an HR tech solution. We just told them, we're like, hey, I know you thought you built an enterprise-grade solution for Fortune 500s. You actually built an amazing solution for companies for you know with 50 to 250 employees. Is that a bad result? I don't know, but that's the result. Like, yeah. you know, here you go. These people want to buy from you, and they're like, is their money worse or better than the other money you were looking to get? I don't know, but I think that's an important one. And um, I see it often because founders really, really, really want to show VCs that 1 million ARR in year one and, you know, all those <laughs> kind of classics. And yeah. and it's like, yeah, you, you might get that. Like, maybe, but you've also got to kind of spend some time, like, like think of it like a business for a second. Stop, maybe stop calling it a startup for like a day or two and think of it as a business and just be like, hey, we're yes, I want to impress the VCs, but our real investors are our customers. Right? That's, that's actually who's investing their, their hard-earned money into our company. You know, VCs are here to flip it at some point in time. Okay, yeah. customers are going to ride along with you and, and believe all the promises you're telling them, and really expect that the stuff delivers. So, investing in that and listening to them and and um, being able to be honest about the feedback is is pretty critical. Um, you know, when you're building out your your sales uh, element in the company. With the testing side of things, obviously you mentioned that you know VCs are pushing this, and every founder is going to hear this. Though on a more you know tangible level, I mean, how should they go about testing, and then also looking at you know frequency or different ways to go about this? I'd love to hear more from your perspective of around testing different things. Okay, so I'm I'm going to caveat this by saying I'm a little bit biased uh, towards outbound for this specific function. Other people hearing it, maybe you're an inbound person and you're going to get very upset and that's okay. That's um, fine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't want to say feel free to tune off, but that's not the, no, please yeah, don't. Yeah. Um, but I feel like today that outbound is your cheapest way of getting to a no. 
Okay. And, and getting to a no is a very important thing to do because, you know, again, old saying, but you know, the more no's, every no brings you to a yes. And, and it is true to some extent. Um, you, when you don't know for sure who you're a fit for, you have to talk to people and find out from them. Let them tell you. And so, you know, you can think of this very simply as well. Let's, let's ignore the tech startup space for a second. Let's assume I want to go sell donuts. Okay. Um, I would probably ask my friends, like, hey, I, I've got this idea. I want to go sell donuts. Would you buy a donut from me? And someone would say, no, I don't eat donuts. And some say, oh, yeah, I love donuts. Oh, cool. Hey, and then I'd start to kind of survey that maybe, right? Like, all right, of the friends I asked, you know, two out of 10 like donuts. Um, what's common about those two? It turns out both of those two people are whatever, right? A woman or whatever it is, okay? Okay, is this a product for women? Let me ask some more women. No, it's not a product for all women. It's only, you know, because some who are more fit conscious or whatever are not interested in donuts. Okay, whatever. Okay, so that is what you would probably normally do. And then you'd come to some point and you come up with some sort of final product. And in the end, you're selling health bars. Okay, because you found out that after serving 100, you know, 100 uh, women, uh, 98% of them said, we're not interested in donuts. We're very health conscious and, and we're actually looking for a health bar. Right. And, and there's no health bar focused on, on fit women. I'm like, okay, cool. Maybe that's my answer. And that's kind of a, you know, <laughs> and that's it. That's really as simple as it gets. Right. And being able to say, all right, I went out to make donuts and I landed up making health bars. And the reason I did that was because that's what people were willing to pay for. And it was, it was still, I was able to use the same kind of ingredients or well, not necessarily ingredients, but the same kind of processes. Right that went into baking donuts that now can produce health bars and it's actually a much better fit for my market and I'm happy, right? I, I'm doing something that serves people. So I think, um, you know, it doesn't get more simple than that. And I, I um, having said all of that, the one luxury you don't have that's not in that scenario is you don't know who to ask a lot of the time. And yeah. if you're going to kind of build outbound, the first thing I will say is that the list that you build dictates your entire strategy forward. And um, you have got to be very, very clear about who you're going after with your message. And what else is it like? Oh, you know, don't just say Fortune 500 companies. Who in the company? Uh, don't just say the CISO. What kind of, you know, what other technologies are they using that could, you know, make them think about this? Or is it someone who's maybe been in the, in the role for less than 12 months and therefore is more likely to adopt new technology? Is it someone who's been in the role for more than, five years and is likely to leave their role, right? Whatever. What are the other factors? Is it a, um, you know, CISO in a specific industry that's going through massive disruption right now and selling a cyber product to them right now is like exactly what they need because of this new change or whatever. So um, asking kind of those questions and then building a list around that and um, being completely channel agnostic you know, uh, right now in B2B, you basically have three channels. You've got phone, you've got email, you've got, you know, LinkedIn. It's pretty much it, right? Yeah. Ignoring the usual kind of referral. And if you're VC funded, you've got the luxury of like, you know, people open up doors for you, whatever. But um, so being able to run run things across all of them and see what works. And see, you know, hey, I'm getting hold of people on the phone. Guess what? Phone works for you, right? And and then double down on what's working and, and being uh, really aware of that, I think, is is pretty critical. Um, for a lot of founders kind of getting started and getting going. With that in the early days too, I mean, not that there's going to be a clear indication of what, but do you 
in that scenario, so you're looking at, obviously they said LinkedIn, there's phone, there's email. How do you look at prioritizing each of those or you know testing equally? Where's the allocation for that? How do you think about that, David? So um, I'm going to you know also just add that for us, when it comes to building those lists, we've got a dedicated team that focuses on that. I didn't include them in like our original count of, of employees that I gave, but we've got about 20 people uh, based in Philippines, India, and Pakistan that build and validate contact lists. Why this matters, why this is relevant, is because the databases today are not accurate enough. So even if you subscribe to ZoomInfo, the data rot is massive. It's like 50%, okay, um, uh, across like most of them. Um, I'm not, it's not specific to ZoomInfo, but I was just using it as an example of like a yeah. database. Um, and so you need to validate all of those. And you also need to be able to build like, you know, um, very targeted lists. So we've got teams that will actually call into those numbers and confirm that it's Justin who answers the phone. Or if not, here's the extension pathway to Justin. Okay. And uh, research, look over those channels, look over LinkedIn, look over email, etc., and see like, oh, he's still in this position and here's a link to a latest post of his or what have you. Now you can do this manually yourself if you've got the time, right? You can go, you know, build all of that kind of stuff. Um, my advice in terms of channel prioritization, um, number one, be agnostic, but I would say this, the phone is going to get you the quickest yes or no. Okay. Because you're actually, if you get through to somebody, you know, you've got four options. It's yes, no, not me, not now. Okay. Uh, yeah. Email, you have no idea. Did someone not reply because they didn't like what you sent or did it go to spam or, uh, you know, was the person away or what's going on? I have no idea, right? So, but if they're interested in more information, email's a great way of getting through, right? And and for many campaigns, let's look at 2020, uh, phone wasn't working at one point because people weren't like, some industries took forever to reroute their uh, work numbers, okay? So email was the place. Um, social is specifically LinkedIn. It's a different kind of play. Um, you know, in building whistle and also on our client campaigns, I can't say that I've ever felt that direct prospecting over LinkedIn is a good strategy. I think what's always worked well is brand building, personal brand building, building connections, having conversations with people. And if it's relevant, guiding them through, or just by virtue of the content that you put out there, being able to display enough of a domain authority and enough of a, um, you know, interest in the space to get that engagement and then drive them through to a meeting by. And that's honestly, that's how we found a, a lot of our clients is people just responding well to uh, a lot of the posts I shared and said, hey, you look like you know what you do, you're talking about in regards to sales and we, we need some help with our sales campaigns. Can we, can we talk? On that note then, David, because I'm always interested in kind of the content piece and how people look at, you know, creating content to help them in a B2B space or even in a different consumer space. But how do you look at the the content side of things in terms of what you put out there and um, how frequent and everything that goes into that side of things? So I will, you know, add that for me, a big reason why I was even on the radar, right, to start Whistle and was even on the radar for, the, for VCs, for consulting and for many of these startups was because... I felt like in my in one of my roles that I was like I just was underappreciated, and I felt like you know if only the world could see you know how good I am and how much I know. <laughs> That's where it started from. Okay, I'm not saying yeah. it's the most honorable place, but it started from that. Like, and you do need a bit of pain. I got to be honest. I don't know anyone who started a company without the pain, 
right element. I was in a lot of pain in the sense that I felt like I was completely moving in the wrong direction. I'd made a, you know, a, a, like an error in terms of my career and I was burning out. And so part of my protest was basically to just start sharing sales advice on LinkedIn. And I did this for two years. I posted every day or second day and I got a lot of engagement. It was like two, three years ago when LinkedIn, now LinkedIn's going through like a renaissance. It wasn't like that then as much. So I was the one of the few people that was posting and weird things started happening. Like people I knew, I mean, look, I'm here in Israel. This was a small space, the tech space. Everyone knows each other. You just land up, move. It's like the, you know, the Premier League football. You just move. To <laughs> if you're good in sales, you've, you've gone to every club you've played forever. Right. You know, I've done open Barcelona and Real Madrid and now moving over to United, whatever. So, um, so here, like I started getting people like coming up, like, Hey, I read your stuff. Like that was a good post. And like, I was just like, cool, that's so cool. You know, everyone's reading my stuff. And then that started translating. When I, when I stepped into a brand as, as Whistle, that started translating over to the company. And they were like, ah, oh, this guy's posting. So one thing I'll say is this. Number one, think about your audience, okay? Like, what are they interested in? Number two, what are you interested in, okay? Because <laughs> if you're not interested in that stuff, you're going to sound it, right? Number three, frequency is very important. I, I personally have got into a habit of posting every day or every second day, and I've been doing that for two years. It, not everything has to be a, you know, a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning post. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes it's just, some of the stuff might be just personal. Some of it, you get great ideas, but I'll tell you one thing, the more you write, the better you get at writing. It's like the more you, you know, more phone calls you make, the better you get at talking. It's all, like everything else. It's just an art and, I, and that takes time to get right. And I think that um, Gary Vee talks nicely about it. Like he's like, you know, perfection gets in the way of progress. Yeah. Like just just go for it. Like no one's going to hold you. As long as you don't go political, don't don't offend people, don't, you know, but just post stuff every day and you will be shocked as to how far it will take your career and potentially your company. And I think, you know, for founders – of, of startups that are, you know, almost by nature, not well known at all and disruptive and doing something that no one's ever thought of or dominate an industry dominated by other thought patterns and, and companies. Like the best thing you can do is bring attention to yourself and your cause and your values and your beliefs around that you know, industry and, and start to kind of re-educate people. Like everyone's zigging and you're zagging, right? And you're just writing about zagging and they're like, whoa, what, are you, what, is, what is zagging? You know, yeah. we're zigging here. <laughs> um, that's, that's great. That's what you should be doing. Like you're disrupting. You have to, you have to, have to, have to. It's like this, I also think post 2020 sales and the world, I mean, the world flipped on its head, but sales flipped on its head. I mean, we literally know what each other's kids sound like dogs and cats look like you know we've been calling each other and doing zoom calls from our bedrooms and whatever else and um the impact on human relationships and and we've all gone through similar things it's probably the only time in history everyone went through the same thing so the impact on, on the way people connect to each other is dramatically different you can be much more personal you can be much more real and and that's awesome you know that's an awesome awesome kind of factor and i think that because of that, people have moved away from seeing companies as brands and much closer to who are the people behind the brand. And so if, you know, for, for me, for example, at Whistle, we try to give a voice to everyone. In, like I'm trying to get my team to post. We've actually got yeah. our content person. He's like sometimes even ghostwriting for them. Like, hey, 
here's something like put it in your own words, but like here's something you could maybe share. Because if I can get people like I know the impact of just me doing that. Okay, if I can get my whole team doing that, it's going to be you know many times of what I'm doing, and like people are like, wow, these you know these whistlers. They know what they're talking about. You know, they're ready. They get sales. They get sales development. They get inside sales. Like I want to, I want to work with them. So yeah, it's a huge one, and not every. It's it's a code that I don't think everyone's really cracked well. You know, good examples out there are Gong and Drift. I really love like yep. what the teams do. They do just just such a great job on social, um, but it hasn't been completely like formularized yet. I don't think a lot of companies have really figured out how to crack that yet. Yeah, I think there's just an a lot of opportunity though within that. I mean, I get so excited about that because if you just look at the the leverage that the internet has created with these platforms that are free, by the way, <laughs> like yeah, it costs yeah. you nothing to post on LinkedIn. Absolutely. It costs you nothing to post on Twitter. I mean, and the people who are leveraging those platforms to build brand, to drive business. I mean, if you look at a lot of people who are doing it, it's kind of insane. It's not even like it's necessarily that much work. And yes, it's work, but at the same time, you could post, spend a half an hour to even an hour having a really good post on LinkedIn or Twitter, whatever platform, and get a pretty tangible result in a, a relatively short amount of time, uh, which is what I've seen throughout my whole career. I, don't, I give this context because I think looking back, every job and every, even the MBA I went to, uh, USC, even the MBA, everything I've done has been off of content I've created. Like literally every position I could go back to content I've created over time to build brand that's led to opportunities over yeah. and over and over again, which is just so mind-blowing that people don't do it more. <laughs> I think about that all the time. Um, with that as well, though, in that two years you were posting, I love the details. So how did you think about, obviously thinking about who the audience is and that's how it kind of drives the overall strategy, but did you like batch posts? Did you just right off the cuff? Did you plan them on the weekends? How'd you go about that? So my audience at the time was my next hire, like my next employer. All I wanted to attract was the big head of sales, VP sales job. That's what I was looking for. And I was like, whoever's looking for that, you know, head, their next head of sales, they start up. I want them to see my stuff and call me. That's what I started at. Today, my audience is, you know, startups and other companies that are looking to boost their, you know, sales development and inside sales functions, right? So that's who I now pitch to. Um, I've always gone, I'm, there are definitely much cleverer ways. And maybe because I'm, you know, very simple and straightforward, maybe this is better advice than telling you to go and get some sort of, you know, tool or CRM or whatever. <laughs> I just um, put out ideas every day that came to me when they came to me. And if they didn't come to me, I didn't put out anything. And sometimes I wouldn't write something for a few days. Uh, sometimes I would. Uh, get like two ideas a day and I'd be like, okay, let's write this one down for tomorrow. Cause if I do two or three posts a day, it's too much on, on LinkedIn specifically, it's just going to, it's going to crowd my own posts. It's not like Twitter. Um, so, you know, I think, and, and a lot of it, in fact, all of the posts I've put out is cause I felt something. And so I, I always felt like if I start to, um, batch and, and formularize it too much, um, some of that element will get lost. And I think that's what attracts people. You know, if I look at some of the stuff that's worked really well, it's usually kind of a mixture of personal feeling um, wrapped inside of some sort of um, valuable and practical, tangible advice in my industry. And that's what I think people have resonated a lot with in the past. And I think, you know, the biggest enemy to all of this is, is yourself because people are so scared of criticism and, yeah. oh, that wasn't perfect. And, oh, my God, I put a comma instead of a full stop. Like, are you kidding me? You know, just go. 
You know how many like famous and successful people, for example, like dyslexic, and they just write whatever they want to write when they write. I mean, yeah, you know, I don't know. Uh, whatever you say, what you want about the guy, but like Grant Cardone, and he's like, I don't know, ten page book or whatever it is that he put out. You know, <laughs> in an hour he wrote a book. So like, it's like, yeah, just do it. You you don't you know you don't know how what kind of impact it's going to have and. Some of the stuff that I thought was like margarine, people loved it. And some of the stuff I thought was like, this is fire. People just like didn't respond to it, you know. So <laughs> you don't know. You don't know yet. Just get into the habit of putting stuff out there and you'll be surprised to see the results. Yeah. I mean, to that point, David, we talked about, you know, testing early on in this episode. And that's what it's all about, too. If you look at people who are really using those platforms, like by putting more things out and by doing it daily, you get to figure out what things are working and what things aren't. Like when I, um, I, I'm not doing it daily anymore, but I was doing daily podcasting for 113 days in a row. Yeah. And through that, you figure out a lot of things around the types of guests, the questions, the social media posts that do well. Oh, if a guest likes this post, it'll literally do like, three to four or five X number of views. And there's so many things you figure out from just testing different things out and putting it out there. And people are kind of afraid on that note of, of you know, criticism, but who cares? <laughs> you, you, you'll get the, the benefit from it, uh, if anything else. And one of the things I wanted to uh, talk about, I know we were running out of time here, but how should startup founders really think about in-house versus agencies, versus hiring agencies when it comes to the sales function? So I'm, I'm terribly biased, but I will say this. Um, if you have the time and capacity to equip and enable some function of your business internally, like if you're, I'll give you an example, right? I am not a tech guy. So we're looking at building a tech product now. Okay, I am going to outsource that to someone intelligent uh, if, if I can, you know, do so or hire someone. But I would only hire someone if I knew what I was hiring for. And, and knowing myself, I don't. I don't, I wouldn't even know if this guy is going to be a good CTO or, you know, a girl's going to be a bad CTO. I have no idea. So if I don't know, I would work with a reputable kind of uh, agency that handles everything end to end because it's one less worry in my books. And it also comes down to, this is like, a you know, the, the saying that I learned in startup land, um, which is, you know, what are you optimizing for at what stage? Like if I'm really just here to have conversations, it's in sales development, with my audience, I'm just trying to get to the most no-frills way to just have conversations, figure stuff out, book some meetings, close some deals. Maybe I don't want to go through the whole process of ramping people up and training people and hiring people and hiring an HR person to hire people. And now like thinking, maybe I just want to get the you know initial feedback going, right? So I think um, there are also a lot of things now that you can you know, practically a, a lot's changed as a result of, of COVID. And I don't think a lot will, you know, go back to being the same. Remote work can't be understated as to what that means for the employer-employee relationship. Um, this is, again, very biased. But my belief is <laughs> the, the employer-employee relationship is broken from both ends. And it's been broken for a long time. And 2020 is one of those years that highlighted it because irrespective of, you know, the company, Many companies let people go, right, almost immediately as soon as the COVID, as like the COVID announcements hit their shores, right? So um, even those that had maybe opportunity to weather the storm, they didn't know how long the storm was going to last. They didn't know what was going on. So they freaked out. They let people go, right? Um, employees, when they get offered a better job offer, they will leave you. So the concept of buying loyalty or owning people, it doesn't exist. It fundamentally is wrong. And if you're an entrepreneur, you don't really believe in it. 
um, what you, because if you believed in it, you'd be an employee, right? So what yeah. you believe in is entrepreneurship. And one of the things that I, you know, always felt at Whistle was that we were going to build a company of entrepreneurs. By legal definition, everyone at Whistle, including myself, is a contractor. And as long as you don't um, compete with the company, okay, if you want to, you got a side hustle, you got a whatever in the daytime or whatever it is in the nighttime, depending on the hours you're working for us, to, <laughs> to like, go for it. You know what I mean? Go for it. Do it. I, and if I can help you, do it because like, I don't own you, right? I'm not like, a, I don't own you. I don't own your, um, your, and limit your ability to earn an income. If you've got something else going and I'm just facilitating that, fantastic. As long as you do great work for me, don't compete, go for it. So I also think in terms of hiring, like, you know, it's different. Like, I think also people want to see a full office. But if you don't have an office in front of you, right, and you're not going to fill those, those bean bags in the Skyrise building in the middle of the city, then you know what? <laughs> like, hey, is there a leaner, smarter, better way for me to get the job done without taking on all the responsibilities of hiring and having to fire if necessary, you know, those people? I can tell you one thing that I learned about the world of agency so far. No one cries when they fire an agency. Okay, they they might have a hard time firing that specific employee, but firing an agency is not a problem for most people. And so I think, personally, I've I've thought very differently about the the state of work uh, this year, and I will in the future too. And it wouldn't it wouldn't change that whether I was an agency, whether I was a VC funded startup. There are some key positions that you do need, you know, you know, possibly employees for because you're dealing with IP and whatever. And even that you can work around with you know a good hiring procedure some good legal contracts in place like you know what we have and make sure you know ultimately <clears throat> that you're protected but um yeah i think the the whole world has changed in that regards and and i think a lot of the barriers to outsourcing are gone uh because well they're not going to be in front of me anyway and so I, I don't know if i can hire and train and do all of that stuff while my uh, kids are crying and dogs are barking and you know maybe there is a an a fully done for you service that everyone else rates really well and l let's go with them right so that's that's my case for it i think my case against is if you've got the stuff already and you can you know this like you know I, if i <clears throat> i started another company i wouldn't need to hire i wouldn't uh, need to necessarily outsource the sales development and sales functions i know that pretty well Right, maybe I'll outsource another element of us, UX testing or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it comes down to your strengths as well. And I would, uh, of course, love to talk way more about all this. I think it's it's really useful. I know we're almost out of time, so I just want to one more last question here. Just where, what's next for Whistle? Where are you guys going? What's kind of the, the big vision for where you're trying to take everything? Um, look, there's three kind of main areas that we're looking at uh, next year. One is uh, the sales development side of what we do, which includes kind of the inbound, outbound, and also uh, this LinkedIn element, which we're calling modern PR. Um, the other element is actually running inside sales. So taking for companies with high volumes of inbound leads that some of which are businesses, um, taking those to close, uh, relatively transactional discussions, but still necessary to have a discussion with a human. Yeah. Uh, the third one, which is like the kind of interesting one is this data element. Um, you know, we do a lot of work with, as I mentioned, like researching, building, um, data contact lists and I think that um, we're getting lots of interest from companies just to do that for them and it's starting to shape up into a product a data validation product and um, I think there's there's lots of work there um, 
I'm going to, I, I always felt like everything that I was doing is eventually going to leave me building some sort of, you know, tech startup again. <laughs> and it, it probably will. My blueprint has always been MailChimp. I, you know, the MailChimp story, they started as a marketing agency and then realized everyone needs email. And so yep. that's what they did. Um, so I felt like if I put myself in the position as an agency or as a consultant initially, I'll find problems. And then if I see that there's an option for a technology solution to solve it, we will build that solution. And that's the journey that we're on. I love it. And David, where can people go to learn more about Whistle and connect with you as well? So you can find me on, on LinkedIn, David Zeff. Um, I think I'm the only David Zeff who is at least the CEO of Whistle. Whistle, you can find it at callwhistle.com. Um, and yeah, and, and, and that's, uh, those are the two yeah, best places to find us. David, this was a lot of fun. appreciate the insights. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.